few weeks, as, as I referenced, uh, this particular week is, um, is the week of the crucifixion that Jesus is, uh, in the last few weeks we've seen where he has confronted the Pharisees, he's confronted the scribes, he's confronted these different uh, sects that have come to try and accuse him. And then we saw that uh, out of uh, him silencing them, then the disciples, well, they had some questions about the temple. Well, they were first marveling at the temple and its magnificence and its structure. And, and Jesus said, you see this magnificent structure, it's all going to be destroyed. And it was just days before the cross, and I remind you that most people don't know this. Most people are not students of the Bible. Most people... And that you've met have read little, very little of the Bible. I'm talking about most of the community around us. Uh, most people haven't read a lot of the Bible. There's some that have, but a lot of people, you know, you go do street interviews, and you'll find most people have a hard time with naming two of the Ten Commandments or two of the four Gospels. So, uh, so we've got a great deficiency of what people know and don't know of the Scriptures. But one of the things that Jesus did, as we looked at in the last couple of weeks, is it was just days before the cross. In answering the question about the temple, he then told about the end of the age, his return. He told about the destruction of the temple, which happened in AD 70. He talked about the fact that as, he, as it got closer to his return, that many would turn away. There would be many false prophets. He talked about the fact that uh, at the end of the age, there would be earthquakes and violence and that the world would become unhinged to the point as it would move into what is known scripturally as the Great Tribulation. The entire world is someday going to shake. Every island moved out of its place. And all this will happen before he comes the second time, his feet to touch the very Mount of Olives that he taught from that Olivet Discourse. So we looked at that in the last couple of weeks. And all of this is taking place that final week before the cross. And it's the week of Passover, and during this week of Passover, uh, ultimately, uh, people will come together, and they're going to take the Passover feast, and that's going to be observed during this very week. But no one knows, but Jesus knows, that this week is going to be different than any other Passover. It's not going to be like any other Passover before or since, because in this particular week, he himself was going to lay down his life. That's why he's come to Jerusalem. If you're taking notes this morning, I've titled our time in God's Word this morning, Bread and Betrayal. Bread and Betrayal. And this is where we get what is commemorated in churches, and certainly you can do this in your own home as as a family, and uh, it's called communion, or you'll hear it called the Lord's Supper. This particular meal that Jesus is going to participate in, a matter of fact, he gives the directions and the instructions which we'll look at uh, for the apostles or the disciples and getting things ready. But this particular meal is uh, the Lord's Supper uh, was the Passover. And we're going to look at that this morning. And also we see that while Jesus is preparing and looking to the cross and, and he's going to have this last Passover meal, at the same time that Jesus is doing what he came to do, the will of the Father, we see Judas, one of his twelve, is actually having some dark, quiet discussions behind the scenes with the religious leaders, which is all part of the plan of God, that he would be betrayed by one of his own. 
So let's pick it up with, uh, with these first few five verses. In verses 1 through 6, we see uh, what takes place with Judas and uh, how he comes to the, uh, the priest and is there to say, hey, I, I can deliver him to you. Uh, they've been wanting to kill Jesus for quite some time. Uh, we know from John's gospel uh, that they, they were uh, particularly uh, the, the heightened desire to get a hold of Jesus and snuff him, snuff him out, silence him, even ratchet it up after he had, which would have been fairly recent at that time, when he went and raised Lazarus from the dead. Right? So Lazarus had been dead. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, that only further, because that happened so close to the Passover week, that many people, even coming in, streaming in from the Mediterranean world, up from Africa, over from the Middle East, down from, uh, down from what would be the Mediterranean areas of Europe, uh, when people would come in, they would immediately hear, you've got to hear this guy, Yeshua. He's from Galilee. Uh, he he preaches like no one we've ever heard before. And recently, he even raised a man named Lazarus from the dead. These things were all the buzz in Jerusalem at this time. And so the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, that was the, the gathering of the, uh, the religious leaders, they would be there for Passover week. They are thinking, how can we get Jesus? But we have to capture him when no one sees, because if we, act, if we actually arrest him in front of the people, it could start a riot. But if we could find a convenient way to capture him when no one sees it, he can just disappear. Or we can find some other means uh, to kill him. Well, Judas has had his wheels turning. How can I get my hands on what I want in this life? He, he had a great desire for money. He had other interests. Uh, we believe that uh, Judas, uh, for one of the reasons that Judas may have followed Jesus... Jesus uh, came, as we know, to save the world from sin. But many of the Jewish people, what they were looking for was someone who would save them from Rome. And so Judas, we really believe that many Bible scholars believe that Judas also uh, was someone who greatly hoped that Jesus would be the one to overthrow Rome. But Jesus had been saying things that weren't king-like. He had been saying things that were servant-like. And so we believe that Judas perhaps also became very disenchanted with Jesus' goals. And at the same time, Judas was greedy for money, but he also probably looked at Jesus and said, if you're not going to overthrow Rome, I don't have much use for you. And all the while, Judas looked like the other, uh, the, the other 12 disciples. He went to church with them. He preached with them. He taught. He had all the outward manifestations of somebody who was a believer, but Jesus said he was a devil from the beginning. That's not a good endorsement, by the way, when you get that. Uh, he never had experience saving faith. Uh, I'm, I'm coming up with a date. I believe it'll be in April where I'm going to be teaching uh, my first of the how, what, why series this year uh, on what is salvation. Just what is salvation? What does scripturally say? We want to talk about that. And uh, so you can be able to convey that to others when that opportunity arises. But when we look at this um, life of Judas, let's start first with, the. if you're taking notes, four things that we'll look at from the text. First is the lust. When we think of lust, we typically think of immorality related to improper thoughts and actions uh, that the Word of God certainly warns against. But there are other types of lust. 
attempt and draw men and women uh, from God. And, and really, with these lusts, they, they would lead a person headfirst into an escalation of sin. The old proverbial snowball effect. Starts out with a little bit of lust, but it continues to build. We've all seen the situations and stories, uh, not movies, mind you, but real life. And we wonder, how did so-and-so end up there? You know, maybe a real-life story, uh, something in the news, maybe someone you didn't even know personally. How did they end up in such a dark place? How did they end up so cold? How did they end up bent on evil? You ever wonder when you watch, uh, you know, what some of the terrorists are doing, how do they end up with the cruelty to do what they do? Like, how, when do you, you know that they weren't like that when they were one. How does someone end up that way? How does someone say, I can just put a bullet in someone's head and not think twice about it? You wonder how that can happen. Understand that any of us could end up doing anything, and I mean anything we've ever seen done in human history, say, well, not me. I could never do that. Yeah, us. All of us are capable of doing anything we've ever seen because we're born in sin, and unless we're redeemed from sin, we have no protection from our own nature. We'd have only Jesus can protect us from our own nature. And this is true even after you're saved, because even after you're saved, you still will battle things like anxiety and fears and jealousy and annoyance and laziness, and apathy. Those are all of our natures. Jesus rescues us daily from those things. But I mean, from a salvation standpoint, there's nothing to protect us from our own nature unless Christ is in us. Albert Einstein said, it is easier to denature plutonium than to denature the evil spirit of man. Scientifically, he looked at things from a scientific standpoint, but it's easier to change plutonium than to change the heart of people. Only God can do that. C.S. Lewis said, no clever arrangement of bad eggs will make a good omelet. You can do that if you want, but if they're rotten eggs, you're getting a rotten omelet. And we are rotten omelets and rotten eggs in birth, unless Christ makes that change. But when sin festers, when it's fed by the flesh, it'll eventually manifest in something dark and deadly. In other words, the worse sin grows like a cancer. Eventually, it'll be something dark, it'll be something deadly. James 1.15 says, Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, what is full-blown or full-grown, brings forth death. James said it starts with conception. You know, conception is something that the naked eye can't see. It's happening at the molecular level, really small. No one can see it, but when a baby's born, we can see it. Something that festers, it grows. See, the path of lust, if you travel down it long enough, will lead to death. It'll lead to the death of a marriage. It'll lead to the death of a business. It'll lead to the death of a nation, a death of an innocent person or an innocent life. Think of all the aborted children that began with lust. Start something, start, it started with lust, but it ends with death. So much death, so much destruction, so much pain can be traced back to someone lusting for something they just had to have no matter the cost. Do you realize that? Look at anything on the news, it starts with somebody's lust. And I'm not just talking about physical lust. 
all the other kinds of lusts that are out there. See, the Pharisees, they had a lust. The Pharisees are mentioned here. They had a lust for power. They had a lust for position. They had a lust for recognition. See, Jesus was a threat to their desires. He was a threat to what they, think, they thought they were entitled to in this world. Judas, well, he had a lust for money, perhaps a lust for possessions, Maybe a lust similarly to some kind of position within a new Jewish government that he thought Jesus was going to set up, but Jesus wasn't setting up. At least not at that point. He will later. Look how far the lust of these two groups have taken them. It says, And the chief priests and the scribes, they sought how they might kill him. Kill him. They want to murder. These guys are supposed to be upholding the law and the commandments. Murder is a Wicked sin that Moses was given by the finger of God. Thou shalt not kill. They wanted to kill Jesus. How far they had fallen. It was the Passover season. The leaven was supposed to be removed from the house, uh, houses of Jewish homes during this time. The Pharisees, they may have removed the leaven from their house, but they had not removed the leaven from their hearts. No, it was still there. Their hearts were still full of the leaven of lust, of power, of control, of desires. They were completely committed and completely bent on committing murder. And of course, they would convince themselves that it was something other than murder. Justice. The right thing for the country. It's expedient, Caiaphas would say, the priest. It's expedient that one man should die to basically protect the people. It wasn't murder justifiable, I don't know what you'd call it, some kind of justifiable death. But see, that's what sin does. It weaves a web of self-deception. People self-deceive themselves to believing, it's okay if I rob this bank. It's okay if I cheat on my spouse. It's okay if I do this. It's okay if I lie about this. It's okay because here's why I'm doing it. Self-deception. Judas, he was now willing to betray Jesus and set him up to be arrested quietly and away from the watchful eyes of the multitudes that were still listening to Jesus and still thought this man is sent from God. He agrees to 30 pieces of silver. That's not a tremendous amount of money. It's not an insignificant amount, but uh, it's, it's perhaps it may have been the down payment that, hey, here's 30 pieces up front, which is still a good deal of good good chunk of change, but here's 30, it it may have been that it was 30 up front, and when you deliver them, there'll be additional payment made. But regardless of whether that was the full amount or just the down payment on more, uh, he's committed to delivering and trapping the Son of God, the very one he's walked with. Jesus had fed him. Jesus had done all these things for him. Jesus had loved him. And he committed to delivering him. He's so full of his own desires. Look at verse 3. Then Satan entered Judas. Wow. You've heard of people being demon-possessed? Many people in human history have been demon-possessed. Very few have been actually entered by Satan himself. A handful have. We don't believe Judas was the only one, but a handful have. Um, Wow. You think in history, perhaps Nimrod was. 
Some believe maybe Nero was, others. But whether they were or whether they weren't, we know for a fact that Judas was because the Scriptures tell us that Satan literally entered him. Guess who else he's going to enter? The Antichrist. The final world leader will actually not just, not just be helped by Satan, he will be indwelt by Satan. Just like we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, this is the embodiment of pure evil when Satan actually enters Judas. Satan's been looking forward to this opportunity to kill Christ, and Judas is the body of the shell willing to do the work. All started with his own desires, his own lust, and literally Satan has now taken him over. Let's look at the next point in our text, the leading. This leads us to, they basically make this agreement, Judas and the priest. Jesus knows all this is going on in the background, but he's still focused on what we want to look at next, and that's getting his disciples to this upper room for this Passover meal. The leading, if you're taking notes. Jesus now, before we look at the Passover itself, we have Jesus giving some precise directions. He says to Peter and John, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. Um, this was the, uh, the Passover was going to be killed. The, the lamb would be killed. They would eat of this meal together. And they ask him back in verse, in verse 9, so where do you want us to prepare? They didn't have a place. They didn't live in Jerusalem. These were all men of Galilee. They didn't have a home there. It would be like you being uh, in Atlanta and not having a place set up and saying, uh, (laughs) we're getting a big group together. Uh, We didn't make reservations. The city's packed. All the restaurants, uh, reservations are full. Where in the world are we supposed to take this meal? Jesus said, I got it covered. I got a really cool room for us, and it's all going to be there. Here's what you need to do. You go follow my instructions, and everything will be in its right place. And so we have Jesus giving precise instructions to his disciples and um, and how they'll find the place that he's prearranged for them to eat this meal together, which, as I mentioned earlier, will later be known as the Lord's Supper. And the instructions here that Jesus gives in verses 7 through 13, they're similar to when uh, today is many churches are celebrating Palm Sunday, and that was the day that Jesus gets on the foal of the donkey and, and comes down the Mount of Olives towards the, towards the east gate or the golden gate there, and remember, Jesus gave some instructions how to go and find the colt. You'll go find him, you'll be tied up. Jesus says, well, why are you taking him? The Lord has need of him. So we see that he's done this before where he sent them out with very specific instructions and that there would be, all the details would be ready, but they would still have to do their part. And so it's similar to what we found that was back in Luke chapter 19 uh, with the triumphant entry and, and the fact that he had prearranged that the, the fault of the, uh, the donkey would be ready, uh, the cold uh, would be there. All they had to do was follow his instructions. It's a reminder to us that uh, in our life, really all we have to do, Christian, is follow God's instructions. It really is that simple. It really is. That little song, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way. You know, the next part says to be happy in Jesus. When Christians aren't happy, you can guarantee they have forgotten to trust and obey. Not one out of ten times. Every single time, if we find we're miserable, we'll find somewhere in our life we're not trusting and obeying. 
Jesus gives some simple instructions. If they follow them, it will work as he has ordained it to be. So we have this one specific day in the life of the disciples. We have this one specific destination that the Lord is arranging. But notice that uh, in securing the dinner venue, if you will, uh, two things I want to point out. One, Jesus has everything set up in advance of their arrival. So as he sends them out to secure this dinner venue, he has everything set up in advance. And Christian, do you know, do you remember that if you're walking in the will of the Lord, he has everything set up for you tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Things that are not on your calendar that God is going to be putting on your calendar. I hope that doesn't freak you out. God's going to be putting some things on all of our calendars. Some of them we would gladly accept. Some of them we probably say, I don't really want that on the calendar. But he will go with us through them. Amen? He'll be before us. He'll go with us. He's put everything in place. He set it all up in advance. The first thing is he set things in place. But the second, they will be a part of the effort, and they're going to have to exercise what he's told them to do. So it's one thing to know that God has prepared Wednesday for me next week and for you next week. And he's prepared June for me next uh, a few months from now. He's prepared December later this year for us, as long as we're all still here. But he also says we will have to be a part. We're actually going to have to put a shoe on and walk out of the house to go do it. Make sense? So God says, I've got it prepared, but yeah, you're going to have to, you know, Jonah... I've got everything taken care of in Nineveh. They will not kill you and skin you alive when you get there. But you're actually going to have to take your feet and move them in the direction of what would be modern-day Iraq. What does he do? He takes boat and points it to Spain. Right? So God will prepare things, but we still have to walk in it in the direction he's given us. And he says, when you go there, You're going to walk in, and behold, a man, you'll enter the city, a man will meet you. I wish Jesus gave me this kind of detail for everything, right? You're going to go into Best Buy. You're going to walk up and say, he's going to say, I'm giving you this laptop for free, or whatever it may be, right? That usually doesn't work out this way. But he still goes before us, even with mundane things, too, if we're walking in the Spirit. He says, you're going to go, and there's going to be a man with a pitcher of water, and you just follow him to the house. You walk in, there's no one with a pitcher. All of a sudden, here comes a guy with a pitcher. There's our cue. Follow him right on up into the upper room. uh, And and you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room that I may eat? Isn't that awesome, Jesus? I mean, city's packed. No one has room. This is like just like there's no room in the inn in Bethlehem. This is a similar situation at Passover. There's no room. Here's a room, and it's going to be beautiful all set up for them. By the way, the water is a picture of the Holy Spirit. Follow the leading of the Spirit. We talked about this Wednesday, if you're with us, in Ezekiel 47. The water here is a picture of the Spirit. The Spirit is, the pitcher is full of water. 
follow the leading of the Spirit. Secondly, by the way, they go up to an upper room that's prepared by the Master. Guess what? Jesus will go, and he's going to prepare a place for us in a way upper room of heaven. So this is also a foreshadowing of the preparation of the Master preparing the upper room of heaven where we're going to. But all this, he says, he'll show you the large furnished room, and it's all ready. They're going to have to follow in the steps that Jesus has given. Now, we simply read the Word of God, and then we live our life to follow God's Word. Proverbs 16, 9 says, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his step. You walk in the Spirit, you go out to work tomorrow, if you go wherever you're going, and you, whether it's vacation, you say, we're going we're to continue to pray, we're going to continue to seek the Lord, and God will direct our steps. And we'll have divine appointments with people. We'll have divine opportunities. You might have one more opportunity to invite someone to Uganda kids before the clock strikes 6 o'clock tonight. And that might be someone that comes and says, you know, after this I'm coming next Sunday to Easter. Then they come next Sunday and get saved. I mean, I, I had one of those divine appointments. When I, I told you part of my testimony, weeks before Easter Sunday down there in Fort Lauderdale, the girl cutting my hair says, I could get fired for this, but I just got to say, God put on my heart to tell you he's, he wants me to invite you to church, and I think he's got a plan for your life. I didn't report her to the management. I just was really weirded out there in the chair, <laughs> thinking, is that really from God? And it was. Because she probably didn't know when she was reading her Bible that morning, if I just stay in the Word, God will give me a divine appointment. And she doesn't know I'm pastor in a church today, I guarantee it. I'll meet her in heaven. No idea where she lives or who she even is. But we'll have those opportunities. Let's look at the next point here if you're taking, note, uh, taking notes. The law. Look at verse 13. So when they had went and found it, just as he had said to them, they prepared... The Passover. The Passover um, we find in the book of Exodus is the first mention of it. It's part of the law. And Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Jesus kept the law to perfection. He's the only one that's ever done that. Everyone here, if we're judged by the law... According to Romans, let every mouth be shut up. That's what the word, I, I didn't say shut up. That's what the verse says. Let every mouth be shut up before the law. Because no one's kept the law to perfection except for Jesus Christ. He's the only one. And in the partaking of the Passover, that was required by the law. Now, it's a, it's, the Passover is not one of the Ten Commandments. These were the ceremonial laws that were given to the nation of Israel. It's not the commandment, uh, you know, thou shalt not lie or steal. These were the ceremonial laws given to Israel. And by the way, the, the Sabbath was also, the, 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 uh, the keeping of the Sabbath was also part of that ceremonial given to Israel as well. Paul writes about it uh, in Colossians and, uh, and also in Romans. But the... Um, the Passover feast, it was given to Moses, and it was given to the children of Israel when they were delivered from Egypt. Remember, they had been in bondage for 400 years. And then when God delivers them out, this is the 
Passover season, this would be the Passover meal that they would commemorate. This is why thousands of Jewish pilgrims and uh, many, like I said, from countries all around that area, why they were there in Jerusalem during this week. They were there primarily, what was their main reason for being there? Primarily there to keep the law, because the law said they had to keep this Passover feast. And they were also there to celebrate, to celebrate the deliverance of Israel hundreds of years earlier. And that was still a big deal, that God had delivered them from Pharaoh many hundreds of years earlier than that. And many, by the way, Judas would have been one of them, were still hoping for a deliverance from Rome, just as God had done from Egypt. What he had done from Egypt, why couldn't he do it from Caesar? If he did it from Pharaoh, could he not do it from Caesar? So many were, were still hopeful of that as well. But the Passover, it remained this unifying gathering of the Jews that would reflect that ancient escape from Egypt. And then collectively, they would participate as families in a rather unusual meal that involved unleavened bread, so not bread that would um, you know rise like yeast rolls or things like that, it, that flat matzah looking that you see in the grocery stores. It really is like that when you take the leaven out. It's flat, hard, and bitter herbs. This would be part of not the whole amount of the meal, but these were two of the central items that were in the meal. And they would annually continue the command of killing the lamb when? At twilight, 14th day of the first month of the Jewish calendar. They'd kill the lamb at twilight, then they'd have to roast the whole thing, head and all, roast the lamb, and then they would eat it together. You had to pick a lamb that was just large enough for your family, unless you were going to have a couple of families, and then you have a larger lamb. And they would eat that with the bitter herbs and with the, uh, the unleavened bread. And this is the required feast that Jesus had instructed his disciples to go and prepare for. And on this night... Jesus would not only keep and fulfill the law by partaking of the Passover meal, but he would keep the law, fulfill it, but he would also fill up the law. Fill up the law to its maximum capacity, showing what the law really meant by revealing in himself the full meaning of the Passover. No one had known the full meaning of the Passover until Jesus comes along. As far as everyone was concerned, the Passover was what? Deliverance from Egypt. Deliverance from Egypt. Pharaoh tried to kill us. God saved us. Let's celebrate. Right? But let's look at our final perspective this morning. There was more of the Passover that Jesus was going to reveal. Let's look at the love as we come to a close here this morning. And Jesus says in verse 14, When the hour had come, he sat down, and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover. I'm glad you guys sit through verse-by-verse teaching with me. Because a lot of people do not know that the Lord's Supper was a Passover meal. Just that simple little thing. You'd say, well, everyone, no, most people don't know that we celebrate the taking of the Lord's Supper was the Jewish Passover that Jesus kind of 
it, he doesn't change it. He just shows the other side of the coin. It always only seen one side. The, the escape from Egypt side, but he's like, ha, ah, the other side of the coin is me. That's what he's going to show. With fervent desire, he's desired to be there with them and partake of this meal, to be with them, to reveal to them, to prepare them for the really rough times that are coming. Jesus has a fervent desire to love them. And by the way, Christian, he has a fervent desire to be with you. Have you left your first love? Do you have a fervent desire to be with him? He has a fervent desire to reveal to you. He has a fervent desire to prepare you for next year and in your 60s and in your 70s and in me in my hundreds. I'm just kidding. I don't think I'll make it that far. My grandmother's like 97 now. So there's a, there's a tiny gene possibility. I don't see it. The men in our family don't live that long. But he's here to prepare you for next week. And he's here to love you and to receive your love back. Of course, Jesus' love is so perfect. He loves us while we're still yet sinners. In John 15, 13, it says, Greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friends. Jesus said that. He said, The greatest love is that I'm willing to lay down my life. In 1 John 3, 16, By this we know we love because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down ourselves for the brethren. Boy, if you like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that gave his only begotten son, you should also like 1 John 3.16. Isn't it cool that they're both 3.16? That's not a coincidence. John wrote both verses. The Apostle John, John 3.16, 1 John 3.16, By this we know we love because he laid down his life. Did you realize that if Jesus didn't lay down his life in love, you and I could never have the capacity for genuine love? All of our love would be less than agape love. Agape love is the pure, selfless love. In me, in Tim White, born February 1st, 1969, was not born the capacity for genuine agape love. The born-again person, June 1995, received the capacity to actually love people selflessly. Only in micro moments, though. That makes sense? Holy Spirit micro moments, because most of our love is still tainted even when we're at our best. It's still a little tainted. But we'll every now and then, the Holy Spirit will shoot through our life and we'll actually have a selfless moment. And we'll look back and say, that was cool. I really didn't care about any myself at all at that moment. That's only possible in the Holy Spirit. And this is what he's saying, John's saying in first. John 3.16, because he laid down his life, we actually have a choice to lay down ours. John 3.16, 1 John 3.16, we see God loves the world, the Son loves the world, the Spirit loves the world, and God wants to put that in us. But if Jesus doesn't come and bring this love, we've all got problems. Robert Browning said, take away love and the earth is a tomb. But Jesus came to love that he could del- and he go into a tomb to deliver us from the tomb. But as Jesus comes to this meal, he knows that he is the fulfillment. He knows he's the fulfillment of the meal. They don't know that. Isn't that cool? 
they have no idea that their master actually is the Passover lamb. They've been hearing about the Passover lamb since they're little, little tiny guys, maybe a little yarmulke on. But they don't know that he is the Passover lamb. He does. He's, he knows that he's the picture of the blood on the doorpost that actually looks like a cross, head with a crown. Hands, blood drips down to the ground, and you have the perfect cross where the feet would be. He knows he's the picture of the Passover lamb. He knows he's the bread. The unleavened, no sin in the bread, no sin in his body. He knows he's the he knows he's going to taste the bitter herbs of the crucifixion. They always thought of the bitter herbs. You know what they thought of the bitter herbs as? The bitterness of slavery in Egypt. That was bitter. Jesus is saying, that was true. That was 100% the bitter herbs represented Egypt. But guess what? The bitter herbs will be the bitter taste of the cross. He knows he's the blood that's going to be poured out just like the wine poured out. They don't know this. He does. He knows all of this. They do not. And even when he's told them things like this, did they really get it? <sighs> Went over their heads. They wouldn't get it till later. We won't get some things till later either. And he'll do all this for his love for them and his love for sinners, his love for you and his love for me. So he takes this time and he, they, they're used to uh, the ceremonial four cups and the different things that are the elements of the meal, but he leads them through it and he says, this is my body, which is given for you. This is the cup of the new covenant which shed for you. I don't know what they were thinking during this time. They're like, hold on, t- time out. I've been to a lot of Passover meals and my dad never said that. Right? I mean, if you were there, they'd say, time out here. Uh, in their head, they, back, they thought most of these things. They didn't say most of them because they were like, I don't want, you know, you don't want to be the one asking the dumb question in class. Hey, wh- why is X squared there? You know, that kind of thing. You know, but uh, they're thinking it. Uh, we've been to a lot of Passover meals. This is going not according to script. He says he's the bread. He says he's the wine. What in the world is that talking about? He'll reveal it to them. But there's another picture in the backdrop here. It's another aspect of his love. Jesus came to earth on a rescue mission and to find and to win his... And he did... Absolutely, the rescue mission was the number one thing. But he also came to find and win his bride, which is linked with the rescue mission. Does that make sense? He came to find his bride, to redeem his bride, and ultimately take her home. Understand here that the disciples represent the church in this gathering. They are the church, small group, upper room. They're the bride of Christ. And he's been spending time with them for three full years. Do you remember husbands and wives when you were spending time together before you got married? You, this was before text and the internet, and you could sit on that long cord for hours walking around the house, wrapping it around ten rooms, right? You could spend time together in person. You could go to Maymont for six Sundays in a row and still think it was great. Just hanging out together. You never got tired of talking, being together. 
But as I thought about the depth of this night and this meal, Jesus conveyed here a new and ceremonial aspect of his love. Because the other, the other time, he had not conveyed, he had not had this Passover meal and conveyed these thoughts to them like he did here. It was unique. It was different. Men, most of you did way better at proposing your wives than I did. I can guarantee you that. Mine was an epic fail. Thankfully, our better times came later. But most of you, most of you were smarter than me. Most of you planned your proposals. You might have actually taken her to a nice dinner, a nice meal, and you presented an engagement ring, right? You presented an engagement ring. I actually did do that. But that wasn't the marriage. That night wasn't the marriage. That night that you had that meal and you presented an engagement ring, that wasn't the marriage. That wasn't the marriage ring. That would come later in the ceremony. That was the engagement ring. It wasn't the actual wedding ring, was it? It was that big diamond, but it wasn't the, or in my case, the very small diamond, but it wasn't the actual wedding band. It wasn't the wedding. It wasn't the ring. What was it? It was the promise to follow through and to commit to being the husband. It was the promise. It wasn't the, engage, it wasn't the wedding night. It wasn't the wedding ceremony. It was the promise of what was coming, provided your wife said yes. And Jesus does something similar here, doesn't he? It's not the wedding day in the upper room there. It's not the honeymoon, but it is a special meal. And it is his promise to redeem his bride. And it's now only hours away from happening. They don't know that. It's only hours away now. It foreshadows the meal that will take place at the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven. matter of fact, he references it here. Look back in your Bibles. He references that this meal foreshadows the next. He says, I will not eat of this again until the kingdom of God. That's the marriage supper. Isn't that cool? He's saying this, I'm not teaching you a theology. I'm just saying it, it reminds me of an engagement meal. I don't know what God would call it, but it was special because there has never been a meal like it before it or since. And he says, but I'm not going to have a meal like this until the other side. That's cool. That takes place after the marriage is consummated, after the marriage is complete, after the ceremony, but this meal comes before it. And it's a special promise by Jesus to say, I will take you home, even though they didn't even know they needed to be taken home. He does something similar here. And then we see, as we wrap things up, in all of this, Judas isn't softened. He's still cold as ice. Jesus says, woe to the man. Woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. In all this, the other Gospels, you can read the other compilation of the Gospels. Judas even says, is it me? He even says, is it me? Jesus says, you've spoken. You've rightly spoken. It is you. Judas remains committed to betraying and selling Jesus. And he's going to do it. He's going to do it with crisp, calm precision. 
No matter how calm and no matter how cool and no matter how collected a person may appear, maybe even visibly they look like everybody else. And here, Judas is even somewhat vulnerable when he says, not in this but the other, is it me? But it can belie the true condition of the heart, no matter how someone looks on the outside. See, God knows the heart. He sees the depths of how far a person has gone from his grace. He sees if they've given themselves over to evil, even if the outward exterior appears normal. A mafia boss, you've seen the movies or the caricatures, but they're true. A mafia boss can pat a kid on the head with a smile. Pat a kid on the head, give a big tip to the valet, a big tip, maybe a $1,000 tip to the valet. Tuck a soft white napkin over the clean-pressed tuxedo. Use all the table manners, tell a really funny joke, and then order someone killed over a nice meal. True? It's happened hundreds of times in history. But everything, and maybe even go to a Catholic mass the next day. And then go into the confession booth. All looking dignified doing it. See, both lust, lust, which we started off with, and love, which we're concluding. Lust and love will eventually come out in our actions. Lust or love, I should say. <laughs> lust or love is going to come out in our life. And Jesus and Judas will both follow through with precisely what's in their hearts. Judas is going to follow what's in his heart. Jesus is going to follow what's in his heart. Both are going to do what they're intent on carrying out. Jesus had come to Jerusalem to pour out his love, to pour out his blood, and to save the lives of his disciples and millions of others. See, that's what love does. That's what love does. Judas had come to Jerusalem to make a deal with the priest, but ultimately he was making a deal with the devil to get all he could out of life, even if that meant betraying the Son of God to death. He was going to make that deal. Unbelievable, isn't it? Jesus is making a deal with the Father that says, this will pay for their sins. Judas is making a deal to acquire something. Understand that lust carried out always has a vile, ugly conclusion. Don't let anyone ever say, a little lust won't hurt you. You can look, you just can't touch. You ever hear that one? No. A little bit of lust for money, for power, for physical attractions, all of them will end with something ugly, evil, and death. But Jesus chose love, didn't he? He chose his bride. He chose you. He chose to deliver us from our vile and sin nature, which we can't protect ourselves from. He chose to cleanse us. He chose to deliver us from guilt and the judgment to come. He chose to promise his love to us. Christian, I only have one question as we close. Do you choose to love him back? Do you choose to love him back? I know what I'm choosing. And if we choose to love him back, He'll radically change us, and he'll radically change the world around us. These disciples would know this more in about three or four days. Amen?
Let's close. Father, we thank you that your son chose love, to chose to love us enough to lay down your life on the cross. And Lord, we, ch- we choose this morning. I pray we all choose this morning. Lord, to not only remain in the marriage relationship with you, but to grow in the marriage relationship with you. To not only love you, Lord, but to grow to love you more. To not only lay down our lives in service to you, but lay down our lives for one another. For this mirrors your love. And Lord, even this morning, we ask that you forgive us of some of the desires that enter our own hearts, the desires for this world that are not of you, but are contrary to the work of your Spirit. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to cleanse us by the washing of your word as a faithful husband, Lord, you have been to your bride. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand as we close?